The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, your grandma, and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. While verse 12 concludes the discussion of verses 6 through 11, verses 13 through 14 continue the series of Paul's instructions to Timothy. Timothy is to fan his gifts into flame. That was verse 6. He's not to be ashamed, but to share in suffering. That was verse 8. And now he's, he's told to hold on to sound theology and to guard it. That's verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14 are also related to the previous verses in a way by, by way of their content, content. But now we begin in verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words. This could also be translated or understood equally as well. Hold fast the pattern. That word also means the model or the example of sound words. Now, the sound words there would be sound theology, sound doctrine, the gospel, which you heard from me. Paul has been speaking about himself and his faithful Lord, who is going to reward him at the judgment seat of Christ. It would be then, therefore, exceedingly wise for Timothy to follow in Paul's footsteps and hold fast the pattern. Or perhaps to retain the standard, if you prefer the New American Standards translation, to hold fast the pattern of sound theology that was Paul's. The sound theology that Paul taught. In the immediate context, the words in verse 13, sound words, refers to the gospel message in its immediate context. Neither Timothy nor anyone else should ever compromise the content of the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Works are never, never, never to be added to the content of the gospel, as tempting as that might be for some. And I know for some it is tempting to add works to the gospel. When I was in Poland last time, I, one of my most fruitful ministry opportunities was, believe it or not, to preach at a, a Pentecostal gathering. I know that you wouldn't think that I'd be able to handle that, but I did. 
handle it very well, I think, frankly, to pat myself on the back. And one of the reasons it was such a good ministry is I had a great translator there. Wonderful, wonderful fellow who was a recovering alcoholic himself. Actually, the, the audience I was speaking to, was a, it was on a Saturday night, and it was a fairly large group, about a group this size, half men, half women, and the men were recovering alcoholics and drug addicts. And the women, of course, were the wives of the men. And I was not the first speaker. Actually, I was the last speaker. And, and I had a, the, the translator. We kind of set off to the side, as you do sometimes. And when the other speakers would speak, when the people got up and gave their testimony, he would whisper very quietly in my ear what the translation was. And woman after woman got up. Actually, the pastor got up too. But woman after woman got up and, and praised their husbands for getting off of alcohol. And if you listen carefully, that was salvation for them. And I understand that. I understand how terrible alcoholism can be and and drug addiction. And I understand that those wives would want very much for their husbands to get off alcohol because I'm sure, I'm I'm quite sure some of them were abusive, uh, either mentally or physically or perhaps both. So I understand the desire for deliverance from that. But those men needed more than that. As I listened to testimony after testimony, all from the women, by the way. The the husbands didn't say a a word the whole time. And as I listened to the speaker before me, uh, whose entire focus was on getting off of alcohol. And again, this is a meeting for those who are addicted to alcohol and and drugs. Uh, It dawned on me that I needed to change my topic, which I did in midstream. And when I got up to speak to him, the first thing I told him was, I said, I I understand many of you are alcoholics and many of you are drug addicts, but I've got to tell you tonight, I don't care what your past sinful pattern was. Now, there were two responses in the audience. One was like a a little bit of a sigh from the pastor who was behind me, who spoke English, who couldn't believe that I just said that. There There was a response from the wives who kind of repelled back in horror, and then there was a response from the men who finally, for the first time that night, heard an encouraging word. And so they leaned forward to hear, what is this guy going to tell us when he says he doesn't care about our sins? Everybody else had been beating them to death about their sins. And so I told them that Jesus Christ had paid the penalty for those sins on the cross, and that it wasn't theirs to pay anymore, at least unless you want to pay it yourself. And I quoted Tozer's old line, you know, if you choose to pay the penalty for your own sin, just make sure you understand, you're going to do it forever. And then they were more interested And I told him, the real salvation that you should desire is a salvation, it's a deliverance, not from alcoholism, although that would be wonderful. It's a deliverance from hell and the eternal penalty of sin. There's no reason for you to pay that. And then, yes, once you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be very reasonable for you to be so focused on our Lord that you remove yourself from these horrible addictions. I don't know if any of them came to Christ, but I'll tell you what, there were some smiles on some faces that looked like they hadn't used those muscles in a long time. Because, you see, it is, just, it is just inherent in some human beings to be in such a difficult situation that they want to use the gospel as a club. And then they add works to it. And if we were honest, it would be for their own benefit. And, and these drugs and alcohol are just one thing. Perhaps it's some other behavior you want your husband or wife to shape up with. So instead of just giving them the pure, unadulterated gospel, you add a little bit to it. Pastors do that all the time. You know that. Pastors, pastors add a commitment to, to turn your life around and do the right thing. We call that lordship salvation. And lordship salvation is not biblical. You see, an unbeliever can't make a commitment to clean up their life. An unbeliever can make one decision. An unbeliever is empowered by the Holy Spirit 
by grace. Common grace, there's one, one way to put it. Provenient grace is another way to put it. But, but the unbeliever is empowered by God to make the decision to trust Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and, and to be granted eternal life. Then after that decision is made, after they become a new creature in Christ, then they can begin to work on those habits that are so offensive to so many. But if you say, listen, what you need to do before you can come to Christ is not only do you need to recognize you're a sinner, you, you need to turn from those sins, you need to trust Christ, you need to be baptized, and you need to make a commitment not to make not to engage in that sinful pattern again. I think that was five, wasn't it? That's the five-step process of the Church of Christ. I'm not making this up. Why would I give us a five-step process? Now, the first one, recognizing you're a sinner, I think is a precondition for accepting salvation. You're not going to accept salvation if you don't think you're in trouble in the first place. But no, you don't add to cleaning up someone's behavior to the gospel. Christ, Christ is the issue in the gospel. Then, yes, once the Holy Spirit indwells you, an issue we'll talk about in just a few moments, then there's a transformation that takes place in the life of that believer. If they're anywhere closely rightly related to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will take care of that transformation from the inside out. Never, ever add to the content of the gospel. So while the immediate context, back, back to verse 13, retain the standard of sound words, also could be understood in some of your translations. It may say, hold fast the pattern of sound words. While the immediate context there is the gospel message, salvation being by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, it has a broader application, broader significance, and that broader significance is to the entirety of God's self-disclosure to man in his word. That's also in the background of Paul's thoughts there. Read with me some more. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul established the pattern. Timothy was to faithfully follow the model that had been set out for him. This is not the only place that Paul tells someone to imitate him, to follow him. That's a pretty big order if that's where it stops. But, but on both the occasions where Paul says this, he immediately follows up by saying, the reason you should imitate me is because I'm imitating Christ. Same way here. Follow the pattern that I've set. Follow the modern that I've set, the, the, uh, the model that I've set. This is what you've heard from me, but the model that was set was in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So this model has two aspects. First is the aspect of the truth, to be sure. And then the second aspect of this model is the truth presented in the appropriate manner. And that appropriate manner is in faith and in love. Did you get that? There are two models. There are two aspects to the model. One is the truth itself. And I'm going to argue in just a few moments that both of these aspects are critical. You can't just have one or the other. It's a package deal. You lose one, you lose the package. Okay? So the first aspect to the model is truth. The truth presented. The second aspect is the truth presented in the appropriate manner, in faith and in love. Too often today, it seems as though we tend to excel at one or the other, but not both. Some tend to, uh, toward the aspect of preaching the truth, and they are accurately presenting the truth, but they do so in a manner that is less than loving. And the beauty of the message is often blurred by the harshness of the presentation. I think Ravi Zacharias said it best when he said, 
Truth, without the undergirding of love, makes the possessor of that truth obnoxious, and the truth possessed repugnant. So there is truth, and, and, and it's vital. And there are some folks that, that get that first aspect of the model, and they preach the truth. But they preach it in something other than love and faithfulness. And then there are others, the other side of that coin. There are others who make a beautiful presentation, but there is little truth in the message. Listen carefully. If you don't get anything else, get this, please. The strength of the Christian faith lies not in the believer's ignorance of its basic doctrines. I want to say that one more time. The strength of the Christian faith lies not in the believer's ignorance of its basic doctrines. That is not what makes Christianity strong. True, Christianity is more than just knowing biblical truth. Christian maturity is more than just knowing biblical truth. But it cannot be attained apart from a knowledge of biblical truth. So Paul desires that Timothy and the rest of us speak the truth in love. It's a package deal. We are to speak the truth, and then we are to speak it appropriately. And there is no room in Paul's theology and his exhortation to Timothy for one over the other or one absent the other. It's a package deal. You've got to have them both. You have to speak the truth, and you have to do it right. Don't speak the truth harshly, but at the same time, you don't come up with such a beautiful message that is just empty, empty as a hostess cupcake when it comes to nutrition. And if you didn't know, hostess cupcakes are pretty empty when they come to nutrition. Maybe taste great. But, you know, afterwards, if you're, if you're not used to it, afterwards you eat one of those things, and you, you just have this funny feeling comes over you like you're fixed to go into insulin shock <laughs> because there was no protein in it. There was nothing to really nourish you. And while you ate it, it, sounded, it, it, it was wonderful. We have to guard against both. That's the point. We have to guard against both. Now look at verse 14. Guard, here's this word again that comes up. Actually, we, we had it last week in verse 12 when Paul says, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Well, here the word comes up again. Paul speaking, he says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The treasure, of course, is sound doctrine that Paul referred to earlier. The only thing, in my view, the only thing to be more highly treasured in your life than the Word of God is the God that the Word reveals. That's the only thing that you should value more than God himself, and that is uh, more than the, the Word itself, and that is God himself. If we were to go back to one of the most famous uh, psalms, that's Psalm 119, and we were to listen to what the psalmist said in 119 verse 9, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, here's the answer. By keeping it according to thy word. It really troubles me. It, it, um, it bothers me when I see very well-meaning people attempting to live the Christian life apart from a knowledge that comes from the Word of God about the Christian life. I don't know if you've done this recently, but if you hadn't, you might try tonight. When's the last time you thanked God 
that he chose to reveal himself to you. That you thank God that he's not the, the God of Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Paine. That, he, that he's not a deistic God that's out there, that's transcendent but not imminent, that, that created the world and then remained silent. When's the last time you thank God, as Francis Schaeffer said, that he's there? And he's not only there, but he's not silent. When's the last time you thanked him for telling you what he expects of you? Wouldn't it be a difficult go of it if we knew that God existed, but we had no idea as to what he expected of his creation? God's divine self-disclosure is an incredible gift that he's given to us. So how can a young man keep his way pure? How can we live our lives in a way that would please God? Well, it seems rather simple by keeping it according to thy word. And then in verse 10, with all my heart I have sought thee. Does that sound like you? You don't have to nod yes or no. This is, this is a question for you and you alone. Does it sound like you? With all my heart I have sought thee. Can I be frank with you? I'd like to. Or have you been around the Word so long? Have you had so many opportunities to learn the Word? Even today. You had opportunities to learn the Word on the way to work. You could have put it tape in. There are more books out there about Christianity than any one of us could read in our lifetimes. I'm talking about good books. If we sat down right today, if I was to sit down today and did nothing else but read for the rest of my life, I couldn't read all the wonderful books about Christianity that are out there. Have we become so accustomed to the incredible availability of God's divine self-disclosure that we've become complacent? Now, we tend to put people down who ignore it altogether. And if it, as long as it's done not in a sinful way, as long as it's done just in, in recognition that that's wrong, like Paul does in Romans chapter 2, nothing wrong with that. The, the, the moral person in Romans chapter 2 is not condemned because they recognize immorality in the immoral person. The, the moral person is condemned because they do the same things. Now, I wonder if we're doing the same things too. You see, we see the error, don't we? When people completely ignore the word. But what's the functional difference? In people ignoring the word because they have no positive volition toward it. And us becoming complacent toward the word because we've been bathing in it for so long we take it for granted. You tell me. Do you search? Are you searching for God with all your heart? Do, would you really? Would you really... Pray to God, do not let me wander from thy commandments. Could you say, like in verse 11, Thy word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against thee. It's a word we have here in this passage. This also could be understood as hidden in my heart. But I've taken your word and I've made it such a part of me that the psalmist says it's been hidden in my heart. And the reason I did that is because I don't want to transgress against you. I don't want to offend you. I don't want to commit some sin willfully. I mean, I'm going to do it, but it's not my desire to, to commit willful sin, a sin for which Christ had to die. You know, just one more that he had to pay for. Whether it's not having any positive volition toward the Word at all, or whether it's coming to church and making your grocery list out during the teaching of the Word of God. Happens, you know. If you're going to do that, just one, just one word to the wise. 
realize that we, we pick up the bulletins after church. <laughs> we do. I see what you write sometimes. So if you're going to doodle, if you're going to make your grocery list uh, while the teaching, the Word's going on, make sure you take it with you. Okay? Fortunately, nobody's put their name on it yet. But... Um, you know, and, and i got to tell you, it's, it's not so much discouraging to me, it's, it saddens me. It saddens me that we've become, I'm talking about as a group, I'm, not, I'm talking about as a culture, not, not as, as you individuals, but as a culture, we've become so complacent with such a wonderful gift, a gift that Paul calls a treasure, a treasure in Second Timothy. Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimony as much as in all riches. And that word for testimony can also be understood as the law or the revelation of God. That's what he, that's what he valued the most in life outside of his personal relationship with his Creator. He valued the information that the Creator very graciously revealed about Himself. I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. We talk about Christian meditation. Make sure you don't get caught up into something that's an Eastern meditation. When Christians meditate, we don't, we don't remove all thought from our mind. And then let whatever comes in, come in. That's an Eastern, that's a Buddhist kind of meditation. It's a Hindu type of meditation. When a Christian meditates on the Word of God, we're meditating on some content. You see the difference? They're, they're clearing their mind so that whatever, frankly, Satan wants to put in it, he can. They create a vacuum in the mind and something gets sucked in. That's not Christian meditation. When we talk about meditating on the Word, when you do that for perhaps your morning Bible studies, you have your cup of coffee, you go sit and you have your, your, your quiet time. I hope that you're not just going into a blank mode. I hope you're reading the Word, and then you're considering it. That's what this psalmist says. We can even translate it that way. I will consider I will consider carefully your precepts and regard your ways. The Word also can be translated, look upon thy ways. I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy Word. Someday we're going to take the time and go over the entirety of, Roman, of um, Psalm 119. Oh, it'll be a great study. It'll be a motivating study. But for the moment, back to Second Timothy. I hope you see why I went there. Uh, the Word of God should be one of our, uh, should be the, that which we treasure the most. And I'm not just talking about your family Bible. You know I, know, I know how upsetting it is to lose your Bible. If I lost this Bible, I'd be upset too, because this is what I call my preaching Bible. I've got different notes in here. I've had it for a long time. I don't want to lose this one. Um, somebody borrowed the other day my secondary preaching Bible, and I know who it was, and I'm coming after you. Because I need that one too. You know, in this case, this one ever gets lost, i got a copy that looks just like it. <laughs> but I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about the content of this. So you can still have the Word if they put you in a prison camp and burn your Bible, if that Word is treasured up in your heart. So look at, look at again at verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Part of that treasure is the gospel message. Again, in, in the very most, the most narrow, specific context, it's the gospel message. But in its broader significance, to use those two terms, meaning and significance, it's the entirety of God's self-revelation. 
Timothy is urged once and for all to guard this deposit. He must defend it against every attack and never allow it to be modified even to the slightest degree, whether it's the gospel or whether it's the clear teaching of the word of God. But since the enemy is strong and Timothy is weak by comparison, Paul adds the thought that this guarding cannot be done. It cannot be accomplished except through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us or within us. That is, within Paul, within Timothy, within you and within me. Spend just a few moments as the class kind of comes to an end tonight on this idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The key verse, the the verse that we turn to first when we consider this indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is, of course, found in John chapter 14 and verse 16, which says, and this is part of Jesus' upper room discourse, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you or dwell with you forever. This is where Jesus promised that the Spirit would indwell believers and that the indwelling would be permanent. This permanent indwelling would not be for a select few like it was in Old Testament times. We know that the Spirit indwelt Saul. They used a slightly different word theologically for that, but the Spirit was within Saul. The Spirit was within David. Now the Spirit left Saul when Saul had the hit his great sin. The, the Spirit left him. Some people think that that's, that means that Saul was an unbeliever. I don't believe that. I, I think that's probably going way past what the text said. But then I watched David's response. After David's great sin, you remember what he prays? He said, oh, Lord, don't take thy Holy Spirit from me. Because he saw what happened to Saul when he sinned. David knew that his sin was every bit as great as Saul's was in terms of his rejection of God's authority. And David was very bothered, very moved, very much afraid of the idea that the spirit that dwelt within him would be removed. The indwelling Holy Spirit provides the empowerment for the believer in this dispensation to live a life that will glorify God. You can't do it on your own. It's the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that allows you to live a life that will glorify God. In these next few minutes, let me give you five factors relating to the Holy Spirit that I'd like to outline that, that, that speak of the Spirit's indwelling to allow us to glorify God. First, we must realize that the Holy Spirit is a gift. And that the Holy Spirit is given to all believers in Jesus Christ without exception. We're talking about in this dispensation. This is one of the unique things about the church age. The Holy Spirit is a gift given to all believers in Jesus Christ without exception. No conditions are attached to the gift of the Spirit except faith in Christ. We studied that not too long ago in John chapter 7. Many scriptures speak of the Spirit being given to believers. And the word in these passages means to bestow a gift upon someone. Passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 8. 1 John chapter 4 verse 3. Because the Holy Spirit is given as a gift, there is nothing a person can do to receive that gift apart from just simply accepting it. And it's not a, even a conscious acceptance. This, of course, runs contrary to the theology of many today. That, that the, the giving of the Holy Spirit is not necessarily given to all believers. And that there are many believers out there, they most would consider me to be one of them, and don't smile, you to be the other one. 
that don't have the Holy Spirit. Because, well, I can speak a little Spanish, and I'm in the process of learning a, a little French, and I can read Greek fairly well. Never spoken in tongues. See, tongues was a, it was a foreign language. And see, to many people, it's the, the speaking in tongues that's the normal and necessary manifestation of the fact that you have the Holy Spirit. It's a distortion of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that could be easily remedied by a careful look at that passage. But unfortunately, folks that feel that way, feel that way. It's more of a feeling. It's more experience-driven than it is text-driven. No, listen, at the moment, at the very moment that you trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, the Holy Spirit came to indwell in you and will never leave. In fact, that's, that's such a strong statement that uh, before the Holy Spirit even leaves this planet, we got to go up first. Then the Spirit is withdrawn in the, in the tribulation time. The Holy Spirit is a gift. There's nothing that you can do to receive the gift apart from just simply exercising faith in Christ. The second uh, thing that I'd like to make sure you understand, the second factor, is that the Holy Spirit is given at salvation. This is the positive statement, or the positive sign of the coin, which, which also would state that the unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 indicates that the Holy Spirit is given at the moment of salvation. The sealing and indwelling with the Spirit took place at the time of believing. Galatians 3.2 also emphasizes that point. Another factor is that a person not possessing the Holy Spirit is an unbeliever. So for my, my friends who would say that I do not possess the Holy Spirit because I haven't spoken in tongues, which according to some of them is the normal and necessary manifestation that I have the Holy Spirit. Of course, Paul says not all spoken tongues. So, I mean, I wouldn't let that one little text get in the way of uh, theology, but, but he does say that. But they would have to say, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that I was an unbeliever. If they, if they insist that I don't have the Holy Spirit, but I do have the Holy Spirit, and so do you because it was given at the moment of salvation. Jude 19 refers to unbelievers as devoid of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells carnal believers. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers. The carnal Corinthians, who were guilty of, amongst other things, incest and lawsuits against uh, fellow believers, uh, the city had become so perverse that the name Corinth had been turned into a verb that meant fornication at the time. Yes, this group that Paul had such a hard time with, or that gave Paul such a hard time, every one of them was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. If only a select group is indwelt by the Spirit, then the Corinthians would not have all been indwelt. Especially that bunch. I like it that a lot of the material about the Holy Spirit is in Corinthians. Because we can't make any excuse that they were like the poster child church for spirituality of the ancient world. They weren't. Maybe if this had been given to the Ephesians, you might, people might get confused and say that. But that wasn't. It's given to the Corinthians. Romans 8, 9 and 2 Corinthians 1, demand a conclusion that all believers, regardless of their spiritual condition, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I can take that one step further, and I, there's, a, there's a text that I, I enjoy very much. It was, it's not an easy read, 
but it's a good read. It's called Revenge of the Conscience by Jay Buzhashevsky. Buzhashevsky is a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas. And in that text, Buzhashevsky speaks about how the indwelling Holy Spirit uses the conscience to convict believers of their sin. Now, there's more to the book than that. He talks about how the conscience is used to convict unbelievers as well. But, but the Holy Spirit indwells you and convicts you of that carnality through your conscience. And finally, the Holy Spirit indwells believers permanently. Not only does the Holy Spirit indwell us all, but it's permanent once it occurs. The Holy Spirit is given to believers as a down payment which is a verification of future glorification. That's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. So these five factors relating to the Holy Spirit, I want you to understand the Holy Spirit is a gift. The Holy Spirit is given at salvation. A person not possessing the Holy Spirit is an unbeliever. The Holy Spirit indwells carnal believers, and the Holy Spirit indwells all believers permanently. While you're thanking our Lord for things tonight, and you're thanking Him for His gracious, divine self-disclosure to mankind through His Word, also in His Son, to be sure. To be sure. You might want to thank Him that no matter how bad you mess up tomorrow, the Holy Spirit's not going anywhere. That's a pretty nice blessing. I'm sure grateful for that one. We don't have to pray like David did, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. When he prays that prayer, he is so passionate because he knows what an asset that is. And in his dispensation, not everybody had it. It's a unique ministry. So again, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the text says this, Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul had established the pattern. Timothy was to faithfully follow that model that had been set out for him by means of the empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit.